Anyways, um, good to see everyone. I'm, I'm glad to, to be here with all of you, despite the crazy weather that we've been having this week. Uh, praise God for keeping us all safe, but also praise God that he gave us this rain that we so desperately needed. Uh, so, you know, we can give thanks to God in all things, and, uh, you know, rain is one of them. Crazy storms is one of them, too. Uh, there's always blessing uh, that uh, we can recognize from our Lord, even in the small things. And in a sense, that's kind of what we're going to be doing today. Uh, our passage uh, this evening is going to be found in Mark chapter 6, but when you read it, initially, it's kind of like, well, what do we do with this? All right, and so in, that's what we're going to be kind of going through today. I'm going to explain the text to you, but I'm also going to try and provide some devotional thoughts for you as well. Uh, but before we do that, last week, we had an opportunity to begin our new year together, as Pastor Ray reminded us of the leadership's vision for joint heirs. Uh, as believers, our goal in our journey to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, our goals, excuse me, are to learn God's word. Right, to seek discipleship, to serve the church, and share the gospel boldly. Right, so our goal as a fellowship is to try and grow in those four areas, right, to learn God's word, to seek discipleship, to serve the church, and to share the gospel boldly. This evening, we're going to, tr we're going to uh, learn more about the word, but also see how it can apply to those different areas of our lives as well as we return to our study in the book of Mark. And Lord willing, the study will allow for us to see how we can apply God's word, even when the meaning is uh, maybe not as clear in terms of how we ought to, um, to apply it to our lives. So uh, if you're not already there, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. Okay, Mark chapter 6, 1 through 6. Mark writes this, And Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to this man, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this man not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Hosus and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were taking offense at him. And Jesus was saying to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he had except for that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was marveling at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for allowing for us to uh, so get together to have fellowship with one another, intentional conversations uh, around the word and um, just reminding each other of the truth of scripture as we sing together and even as we hear your word preached. We're grateful for these opportunities where we can um, learn to love you more with our minds and how you use the, the preaching of your word to provide the fuel for our hearts to uh, to, to burn with passion for you. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, this time of instruction tonight would be the thing that informs our worship rather than just an obstacle to our worship. We're grateful, Lord, for this time where we could study your word together. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the idea of going home is a comforting idea for many people. Whether home is the city where you grew up in, the city where you have the most memories, 
the city where you went to college or perhaps the city that you reside in, home is comfort. Right? Home has your favorite foods and it has your favorite shops. Home has the climate that you are likely most comfortable in. Home also tends to have the community of people whom you love. Now, not everyone has the option to return home or even return home often, but homecomings are usually sweet as we visit our favorite places and we spend time with our favorite people. But as you all know, returning home often has its challenges too. Sometimes the challenges that you left behind when you went away resurface once you return. You guys remember that. When you were in college, you had all that freedom. You could stay out as late as you wanted. Nobody checked in on you. And then when you go home for Christmas, they're like, where are you going? When are you going to be home? It's like, wait, I haven't had to answer this to you for, for, for almost an entire year. And now I have to answer this, uh, answer this question for you? Right? Some of those challenges, they come back, right? And that's just probably one of the smallest challenges. And so, you know, a return challenge is something that often faces people when they return home. And that's exactly what Jesus meant when he returned to his hometown. Now, the last time Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth was in Nazareth, excuse me, was in Mark 3. And it was here that the religious leaders, they tried to convince the people that Jesus was possessed by Satan. Right, he was casting out demons, and they were saying, well, he, he's only able to do that because he casts out demons through Beelzebub, through Satan. Right, and it was also there that Jesus' mother and his brothers came looking for him, and they're like, hey, you got to come home. Because right, they thought, you're out of your mind. Right, not exactly a great way to spend your visit home, is it? Well, in tonight's passage, Jesus returns home to Nazareth for a final time to try and minister to his hometown. And as we just read, it's not exactly a great visit this time either. And despite the fact that the visit doesn't go well, doesn't go exactly as Jesus may have wanted, we're going to observe two lessons. Two lessons from Jesus' ministry to his hometown that encourages us to be thankful for our salvation. Um, Two lessons from Jesus' ministry to his hometown that encourage us to be thankful for our salvation salvation. The first lesson that we're going to to learn is that spiritual blindness is not easily overcome. Okay, spiritual blindness is not easily overcome. And two, Jesus is merciful despite rejection. Okay, Jesus is merciful despite rejection. Those are our two uh, lessons that we're going to learn today. Okay, so the first lesson that we we learn, um, that we observe, is spiritual blindness is not easily overcome. Spiritual blindness is not easily overcome. Verse 1. And when Jesus went out from there and came to his hometown, sorry, and Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, I know it's been a little while, but if you take a quick look uh, back to Mark 4 and Mark 5, we see that since Jesus last left Nazareth, he had a pretty successful ministry. There were a good number of people who did not believe in Jesus even after he preached to them, but there were also a good number of people who did believe in him. During this time, Jesus demonstrated his power over the natural world as he calmed the storm by just simply saying, hush, be still. Jesus also 
demonstrated his power over the supernatural world in casting out the demons who were residing in the demoniacs. And then he healed the woman who had that hemorrhage for over 10 years. And then he also demonstrated his, po his power over life and death when he raised Jairus' daughter back to life. Now, that's not a bad stretch of ministry, right? That's a pretty good one. That's pretty successful. But now we see Jesus returns home to his hometown. And what we learn is that this is not just a, a nice trip for him, right? He's not just going home for Christmas or whatnot. It's not a personal trip. It's a ministry trip. Right, by allowing his disciples to follow him home, Jesus makes it clear that we're, we're going to go home to do business. Right, we're going home to do business. Now, something for us to be aware of, um, something for us to understand, um, to help us understand uh, Jesus' trip a little bit better, is that Nazareth, it's not really that important of a town. Right? We think it's important because, you know, we are here on the New Testament side of things, and we're just like, oh, yeah, Nazareth. Like, that's Jesus' hometown. That's probably a pretty significant place. But it's not. Right? This is a very small village, uh, not really important at all in the big picture of the nation of Israel. It was so small, in fact, that one of the earlier disciples, uh, Nathaniel, said to, um, to Philip in John 1, 46, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Right, this question isn't meant to be a diss on Nazareth, but when Nathaniel heard that, Messiah, that they found Messiah and that he was Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel, being a good Jew, was like, what? Nazareth? That's, that's not even mentioned in any of the prophecies. Right? None of the prophecies talk about Nazareth. That's a nowhere place. Right? Bethlehem, yeah, that's an important city, but not Nazareth. And so, naturally, Nathaniel is wondering, is this legit? Right? The Messiah is not supposed to come from there. So, Nazareth is not really a town of consequence. It's not really important. Um, and uh, in Jesus' day, it would have had a population of around 500 people. Just so that you can kind of get a an idea of how many people 500 people is, 500 people is likely around the size of one class of students at Lowell, Lincoln, or Washington High School. And it's less than the entire enrollment of Wallenberg High School. Right? It's pretty small. Right? And I'm sure if you went to school outside of the city too, your graduating classes were likely bigger than 500. Right? Um, and so though the size of the, the town was not significant, Jesus still had a heart for them. He still wanted to minister to them. Now, keep in mind, right, keep in mind your high school experience. Right? You likely were able to know a good number of the people in your class. Right? Even if you didn't have like, close friendships with them, you, when you saw them in the hall, you probably knew their names. Right? And so this meant that Jesus likely knew many of the people who lived in Nazareth, and they knew him too. Right? By sight, they could identify him and be like, oh yeah, that's Jesus. Right? And that might help explain the response that the people had toward him when they heard him teach. Verse 2. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to this man in such miracles as these performed by his hands? You see, on the Sabbath, traveling rabbis were given the opportunity to read from the scriptures and teach the people uh, who were in that synagogue from the scriptures. And Jesus was recognized as a rabbi 
um, as he was going around teaching in other towns, right? So he developed for himself a bit of a reputation as a rabbi. And so when he returns home, they're like, hey, you're a rabbi now. Why don't you open up the scriptures and uh, teach to us? And so, uh, you know, because these people have heard what Jesus had done since he last left them back in Mark 3, there's like this natural curiosity of like, who is this guy? Right? Where did he get all these things from? Uh, we we, we want to hear him with our own ears. And Mark tells us that many of these listeners, they were astonished by Jesus' teaching. Uh, the word for astonished could also be translated here as amaze, or um, they were left wondering. Right? Essentially, they were mind-blown. Right? They heard Jesus preaching, and they were mind-blown. And as we just noted, right, these people knew Jesus. They knew that he had no formal education, that he came from them. And yet, as they heard him teach, they could not help but be amazed by his teaching. Now, if you were just to look at verse 2, and you observe the response of the people, you might come to the conclusion that this astonishment, this amazement, is a good thing. Right? That it's a good thing. That it's like, wow, we're so proud of you. How did you learn all these things? Right? That's kind of what we would think initially. You would think that their response is complimentary. Right? Maybe like, yeah, he came from us. That's our boy. Go Nazareth. Right? But look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Is this man not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Hostess, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were taking offense at him. Right? That word offense is like a stumbling block. Right? So he was a, it, was like a, it was like he was a stumbling block to them. Right? This astonishment may have seemed positive initially, but the following questions show where their hearts really are. Right? If I were to translate their attitude toward Jesus into our modern day, the response would be like, man, who does this guy think he is? We know where he came from. He ain't nothing special. He's from here. How dare he come in here and try to pretend like he can teach us? How dare you? You're not over us. He ain't nothing special. Now, how do we know that that's their attitude? Well, first, they point to, their, to, point to his profession. Right? Young boys often learn the trade of their fathers. And since Joseph was a carpenter, or Jesus was trained up as a carpenter. And he worked as a carpenter up until he began his public ministry around age 30. So they know him. They know that he has been spending the majority of his life doing manual labor. And so when they're saying, is this not the carpenter? They're basically like, where did you get all this? How did you get so smart? Not in a complimentary way, but it was like, I don't know, maybe even like, did you plagiarize this? Like, who, you know, where's this coming from? Second, they called Jesus the son of Mary. Now, we might not think too much of that because it's factual. Right? And, you know, we also you know, hear it often during Christmas, son of, son of Mary, son of Joseph. Um, you know, uh, even the Roman Catholics, they often mention, you know, that he is the son of Mary. So we hear that often. But back in Jesus' day, Back in Jesus' day, children were referenced uh, or were referred to in reference to their fathers. Right? Think Lord of the Rings. Or, or better yet, think about how we come to know certain Bible characters. Right? David, son of Jesse. Right? <laughs> Here, I'll give, you, I'll give you an easier one. I'll give you an easier one. Jacob, son, Jacob, son of Isaac. Right? 
who is the son of Abraham. <laughs> Maybe we need to go back to adult one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right? And so on and so forth. Right? That was the way that they were typically identified. Right? Is this person is the son of the fa- of this father, right? This this girl is the daughter of this this father of you know her father, right? So often the children were referred to in reference uh, to their fathers. Now some have suggested that the reason why Jesus was identified as the son of Mary is because Joseph had died by that time, but the fact that Joseph uh, may have been dead by this time, yeah, it's kind of likely, right, because even in Mark 3, he didn't show up to, to grab Jesus when Jesus was uh, in the synagogue, right? So, yeah, it's probably true that he might be dead, but there's still no, okay, and I mean no historical or cultural precedent to refer to surviving children by the mother's name, okay? No precedent whatsoever. And, and actually, the only time a child was, uh, was mentioned in reference to their mother's name was when the people suspected that that child was illegitimate. That was the only time. That's the only time. So basically, what they're saying about Jesus, it's not very nice, right? Isn't he the son of Mary? Right? He ain't even a legitimate child. We don't even know who your daddy is, right? is essentially what they're saying. It's a statement of shame. When they talk about Jesus' siblings, right, there's also kind of that sense of hostility towards Jesus too. After all, as you remember, back in Mark 3, right, it was Jesus' mother and his brothers who came for him when they thought he lost his mind. Right, when they're trying to bring him home, they're like, man, you crazy, you got to come home. You wilding right now, you need to come home. Right? And so in a sense, right, it's almost as if the people were saying, to Jesus, look, your family don't even believe in you. Why should we believe in you? Get out of here. Right? That is their response towards Jesus. Now, let's back the camera out here a little bit and take this attitude into perspective. The people, they know that Jesus is something special, right? They've heard the reports. They've heard of what he has done. They recognize that his teaching is authoritative, and that he has great wisdom, which is why they're just like, what is this? Where did this come from? And yet, and yet, because they knew him, or at least they thought they did, their astonishment does not lead to belief. Their astonishment leads to rationalization. I don't have to believe in you. Right? Instead of, of, of looking at who Jesus is objectively, listening to the content of his teaching and comparing it to the teaching of the scriptures that they had received. The majority of the people of Nazareth tried to discredit Jesus and give themselves a reason not to listen to him, not to believe in him. Why? We could go with the big picture argument saying, well, it's because it was not yet God's will for them to believe. And you'd be right in your assessment, if that's, you know, where you, where you go. However, it goes back to a deeper problem, a deep-seated problem that all people have, and that's spiritual blindness, spiritual blindness, right? And, um, you know, there's, 
it, it can be traced back into the Old Testament, but the particular passage I want to point you to is uh, Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. You don't have to turn there. I have the slide for you. Um, but in Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, God tells Isaiah to, to tell the people that they have a problem. Right? Though they have ears, they do not understand what is being said to them. Though they have eyes, they cannot see. They are spiritually blind, even though what is true about God is right in front of their faces. Right? And that's what Jesus points to in Matthew 13. Right? In Matthew 13, we see a shift in Jesus' ministry. Instead of teaching the people directly right, in his proclamation of the coming of the kingdom, Jesus switches and he begins to teach them in parables. And at that time, only the disciples were allowed to know what the mysteries of the kingdom were, but the rest of the people were left in their blindness, their spiritual blindness. Now, what's that big problem with spiritual blindness? Well, unless God works through the power of the Holy Spirit to make the spiritually blind see, even if it's Jesus right before them, even if he performs miracles in their sight, they will still fail to see who he is that they will still fail to come to salvation. If you want to think about it this way, right? what's the proof that Jesus is God? Well, one of the proofs. There's a lot of proofs. Right? But back in the Old Testament, whenever you saw miracles, right, especially in relation to people, you've seen people be raised from the dead. right? You've seen people uh, be able to be healed of sicknesses and whatnot. But you've never heard Right? You never heard of anyone who was blind who could now see. You know, later on in Isaiah, God says, right, God himself says, I will make the blind see. In the Suffering Servant songs, Suffering Servant says, I will make the blind see. What does that tell us? Suffering Servant and God are the same person. Right? They share the same nature. They're the ones who make the blind see. Jesus, he came to make the blind see. Right? Not just physical blindness, but spiritual blindness as well. How does this apply to us? And what are we supposed to take away from this? Well, first, the realization that spiritual blindness is not easily overcome reminds us about the special nature of God's grace. Right? The special nature of God's grace. Those of us who have experienced the grace of God in salvation all ought to be thankful that God chose to save us despite our own sins. Because right? when you're spiritually blind, even when the truth is right in front of you, you ain't going to know. Right? It's not going to make you believe. Right? All those people that tell you, I would believe in Jesus if he showed me that he was real. Right? Jesus, go move that, that curtain over there. Go move that lampshade over there. If you do that, I'll believe in you. Guess what? They won't. Because spiritual blindness makes us defiant. Because if they saw the shade move, they'd be like, oh, oops, I left the window open, my bad. Right? Or they'd be like, oh, you know, that was just, you know, it just happened. It's coincidence. I don't have, I don't have to believe in him. Right? Spiritual blindness causes us to be more defiant. And we ought to be thankful for the salvation that God has given us. Right? He chose to save us in spite of our sins. As we know from Romans 5, 8, God saved us not when we proved ourselves worthy of, it, of his salvation, but in spite of the fact 
that we were unworthy of it. Right? He helped us when we could not help ourselves. And as a result, our only boast is that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. And that's the only thing that we can boast in. You can't boast in the fact that you saved yourself because you contributed nothing to your salvation except for the fact that you contributed to the sin that put Christ on the cross. That's the only thing you contributed. And so this realization that I can now see, that I can now understand these truths in the scripture, that ought to cause you to have such grateful hearts towards God. Wow, why did you save me? Not how could you save me, why? And our thankfulness for God's gracious salvation of us should secondly lead us to a desire to share the good news of the gospel with others. Right? How can we keep this wonderful gift that the Lord has given to us to ourselves? Right? It's a wonderful gift. You want to hoard it all to yourself when God clearly wants all to be saved? Right? We see that in 2 Peter 3, 9. Right? It, that passage reminds us that God is patient toward all sinners, right? Not wishing for any to perish. How many people? Right? No, he doesn't want anyone to perish. Right? He wants all to come to repentance. Right? That's why he gives people a chance. That's why he doesn't give us what we deserve right there and then. Right? He is patient towards us. He's giving us all an opportunity to come to repentance. And so if the salvation of sinners is in the heart of our God, should that not be in the heart of us too? Should not that be our passion as well? Right? Our heartbeat should be for those who do not believe. Right? I know there are people out there who are difficult to love. I know there are people out there who, in their unbelief, make life hard for you but should we not have compassion on them? They can't help it. They're acting according to their nature. They're spiritually dead. They can't help it. They don't know their left hand from their right hand. Right? That's what God says of the Ninevites, right? So should we not have compassion on them? Yeah, I know they might be a pain in your butt. They make your, your work week hard. Right? But God loves them too. Right? Even if they are mean to you, and abusive towards you. We should have compassion on them too. And, and this is kind of relates a lot to the next application. Finally, our thankfulness to God for our salvation, for giving us spiritual sight, should lead us to be gracious and merciful towards each other. Yes, there are times where we're going to have to confront each other. Right? Yes, there are times where, where we're going to have to call people out. But our primary... Um, our primary way of ministering to each other should be colored by grace and mercy, right? Because we recognize that we are all sinners saved by grace, right? We're all sinners saved by grace. And so mercy and grace should characterize us all because we know that if it were not for the grace of God, we would be just like unbelievers, right? We would be just like people who are lost in their sins and so we ought to be gracious. We ought to be compassionate. Because people are either completely lost in their sins or they're temporarily in, 
temporarily ensnared by their sins. Either way, we ought to have compassion for them, right? If they're believers and they're temporarily ensnared, you ought to have that heart for them to pull them back and be like, hey, that's not right. right let's return to the Lord together. Let's, let's return to the Lord and to his people together. That ought to be our heartbeat. That ought to be the thing that drives us within the church. Right? Grace and, compa- and compassion and mercy color the way that we interact with one another in the church. Yes, we got to call people out sometimes, right? but it's never for the sake of doing it um, to make our lives easier. It's never just because, well, you know, I got to make them act right. You know, even within the church, right, are there people who are difficult to love in our midst? Are there people who act immaturely in our midst? Are there people who are still stuck in their sins in our midst? Are there people in our congregation whose actions cause us to wonder whether they are saved in our midst? Right, the answer to all of those questions is yes. Yes. But remember, remember the compassion that God has towards each of us. And that is the kind of compassion that we ought to show to each other. Because when we catch other people in their sins, what are we supposed to do? What is our biblical responsibility towards them? What does the Bible say? Right? Not what you think. What does the Bible say? Galatians 6.1. Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Our God-given responsibility, if we see our brother or our sister in sin, is to lovingly confront them with a spirit of gentleness, taking great care that we do not sin against God and our spiritual sibling in the process. Right? That is our spiritual responsibility. That is our obligation to our Lord. When you look at Matthew 18, right, that confrontation restoration process described there is not prescribed to take all the difficulties out of our lives by bashing people caught in sin over the head so we don't got to deal with them and their mess no more. It's done in love because we know that a fellow believer is caught in sin. And our loving desire for them is for them to stop sinning so that they can repent, so that they can be restored to the Lord. And that broken fellowship that might result as, uh, um, or that might come as a result of their sin could be restored. Right? That is our goal. Right? So we have to be careful. We have to be careful. Each of us has to be careful of being overly critical and overly harsh. Now, I'm not telling you, well, Matthew 7 says, don't judge lest you be judged, so don't judge nobody. Right? Because just, if you just read it in context, there is right judgment that we ought to have towards each other, right? We, we're told to look out for each other. We're told to tell each other hard truths, right? So that's not what this is saying. But it says, be careful in the way that you judge other people, right? Why? Because the way that you judge other people could be the way that people will judge you, 
do you want other people to be overly harsh towards you? To be quick to judge? To take the little things that you do and blow it out of proportion? Do you want that? If not, then don't do that to others. Right, that's the point of Matthew 7. We have to be careful. Be careful of being overly critical and overly harsh. Be careful to make sure that you, that you mirror the grace and mercy of God, knowing that we all sin and that we all need some help sometimes. I can, of course, go on and on and on about this. You know that. Uh, but we have to move on. Right? Uh, the second lesson from Jesus' ministry to his hometown that encourages us to be thankful for our salvation is the lesson that Jesus is merciful despite rejection. Jesus is merciful despite rejection. Verse 4. And Jesus was saying to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Now, despite the fact that the crowds were openly disrespecting Jesus and rejecting him, Jesus does not retaliate against them. Right? We wouldn't blame him if he, if he did, because after all, right, if anyone did that to us, we'd likely fire back and defend ourselves, right? especially if they suggested that we're illegitimate ch children. But Jesus, being God, was unable to sin. Was he tempted to? Possibly. But he was unable to sin. And so instead, he actually responds with a modification of a, uh, a, a saying that was actually in Jewish and Greco-Roman sayings. Jesus knows that these people are offended. He knows that they are antagonistic towards him. And he essentially says, hey, you naturally will respond like this because, you know, prophets have no honor in their hometown. Um, he, he recognizes that, right? He's like, yeah, okay. Well, you guys know me, so you would respond like this. Right? Another way that we could think of it is, well, familiarity breeds contempt. This past year, I know not a lot of you guys are baseball people, but this past year, a very famous Hall of Fame baseball player who used to play for the New York Yankees, right, big, bigger, you know, known around the world, uh, returned to New York to receive honors from the team and to throw out the first pitch, right? It's a ceremonial honor. Um, and he brought his family with him. And everyone in the stadium is making a big deal. Wow, he's back. This is the first time that he's been back in a long time. We get to honor him. We get to celebrate with him the fact that he's in the Hall of Fame as a Yankee. Right? So everyone's like making a big fuss about him. But his daughters didn't care. His daughters didn't care about him, his status, or his honor. Their main concern? That dad bought them ice cream after the game. That's all they cared about. Right, even the little girl said to her dad, when you're giving your speech, can you tell everyone that I'm going to get ice cream after the game? Right, that's all she cared about is ice cream. She doesn't care that her dad's famous. Right? And the majority of us, we probably won't know what that's like to have famous parents, but the indifference of this famous baseball player's daughters illustrates this idea of familiarity breeds contempt. You know, when we know someone really well, it's like, you're nothing special. Right? To them, dad is just dad. Who cares if he's a famous shortstop for the New York Yankees? Nobody, we don't care about that. Your dad, right? For us, or, or sorry, for, for Jesus, right? A pro, or for any prophet, a prophet, when he returns to his hometown, is nothing. He's just another guy. Or just a guy, a jag. Right? Why would anyone listen to him when they grew up with him? And they knew, like, well, I mean, like, he never joined us doing any, like, weird, bad things, but, like, just quiet, good kid. Nothing special. 
and that's what these people were thinking. They're looking at Jesus and they're like, you're nothing special. Like, you didn't cause no trouble, but like, you ain't nobody. Now, Mark, he gives us the most detail here about Jesus' response, because he says here that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and then he includes these other two details, and among his own relatives and in his own household. Right? And so basically the idea is, um, you know, Jesus knows that the crowds are looking for a reason not to believe in him. And so, you know, sure, they're looking at him, and they're, you know, they know he has no formal education, and that might have been a big, big deal to them. But really, they're basically just saying, like, we're not going to believe you, that you, you are who you say you are, because your family doesn't believe. And Jesus says, like, I know what you're saying, but even a prophet's own family doesn't honor him, so why would that be any different for me? Okay. Verse 5. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Some take what Mark writes here to teach the fact that in order for God to work in our lives, we must first believe. And if we don't believe, God's not going to work. Right? He can't work in our lives unless we believe. And there, therefore, the idea goes that, you know, if uh, we want God to have any kind of blessing in our lives, we have to increase in faith. Otherwise, he's not going to work in our lives. Now, that sounds good in a sense that, like, it emphasizes the importance of faith, and we're like, oh, okay, like, you know, we should believe in God, so that, that sounds, sounds good, but that's not Mark's point, right? That cannot be Mark's point. It was well-intentioned, but it's not Mark's point, right? Because after all, Jesus is God. Jesus is God, right? He has power in this world regardless of people's belief in him. To suggest otherwise would be to limit Christ's power in a way that is not proper, because right? taken to its logical conclusion, if nobody believed in Jesus, then he would have no power, right? That's not true. He has power, despite the fact that people don't believe in him. That's, so that's not the case, right? Jesus was frequently performing signs and wonders without people believing in him. For example, not too long ago in Mark 4, when they were in the middle of that huge windstorm on the Sea of Galilee, did Jesus' disciples believe in him? Right? No. They're just like, hey, why are you sleeping? Wake up. Help us get the water out of the boat. Or they didn't even think about who he was. They're just like, hey, help us, because right? otherwise we die. They didn't believe, and he saved them all. Right? In Mark 5, when Jesus is interacting with the demoniac, the, de the demons within the man are interacting with Jesus. Right? They're basically crowding him out so he can't say anything. And what does Jesus do? He cast the demons out. That, that demon-possessed man, he didn't have the, even the capability to put his faith in Christ. And yet, Jesus cast the demons out so that he could later believe in Christ. Think back even earlier into Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2 at the wedding. Right, when all the wine was gone. The only person who thought that Jesus could do something about it was his mom, right? You guys know. Our moms think the world of us. They think we can do a lot of things, right? So it's kind of like, well, whatever. But only his mom thought he could do something about it, and he did. Right? But nobody else believed, and yet he did something that benefited all of them. And there's other examples of that, too, like Lazarus, right? Lazarus, when he was dead, could he believe? No, he's dead. 
right? and yet Jesus raised him from the dead. So Jesus' power to do a miracle is not dependent upon people's belief. Right? And this is also a reminder for us, too, that when we think about miracles and the sign gifts, like what are they there for? Right? It's probably a topic for another class, but you know, they're there just to answer the question that I just opened up. Right? They're there to validate that Jesus is who he is, who, who he says he is. Right? He is God. That's what they're there for. They're there, they're, they, they are there to validate the message. Right? That's what they're there for. Right? So when Mark says that Jesus could not do any miracles except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them, what does he mean? What does he mean? Well, those exceptions are actually really helpful. They're, they're critical in understanding Mark's intent because it's not as if Jesus was rendered powerless by the unbelief of the people. He could still care for some of them. He could still care for some of them, which is why he healed them. What we see here, as he does perform miracles, these little miracles, but um, not for everyone else, is that actually his restraint... His restraint in not performing a miracle is actually divine mercy in the face of unbelief. It's 2 Peter 3.9 in action. Back in Matthew 12, 38 to 40, the religious leaders, they come to Jesus and they ask him for a sign. They're like, show us a sign, Jesus. He's this big old miracle worker guy. Show us a sign. They wanted proof for their own eyes that Jesus was of God. But Jesus does not give it to them. He could have, but he does not. Instead, he calls them an evil and a wicked generation, and he says to them that there will be no sign given to you except that which is the sign of Jonah. You guys remember what happened to Jonah, right? He was famously in the belly of a great fish, not necessarily a whale, sorry, VeggieTales, right? but a great fish for three days and three nights before being expelled onto the dry land. Fast forward to Jesus' death and resurrection. How long was he in the grave? Three days and three nights. The only proof that God chose to give the people that Jesus was God, that he was who he said he was, came after Jesus' death and resurrection. That was the only sign that this unbelieving generation was going to get. Why? Why? Because God was being merciful to them, sparing them from further judgment. You see, the more they knew of the truth, the more accountable they would be for responding to the truth. It's for this reason. If you look at the rest of Matthew 12, Jesus explains the only reason why you're going to get the sign of Jonah is because you're going to be condemned. Because what you see and what you fail to respond to you're responsible for. Right, he's, he even uses the example of Nineveh and the queen of the south. And he says, the Ninevites, right, Assyrians, right, and you remember Israel's culture, right? they don't like the Assyrians. Right? The Assyrians are going to point to you and say, you guys are all messed up. You were condemned for your unbelief because you saw the work of God and you denied it. Right, the queen of the south, she was the one, if you guys remember, who heard of Solomon's wisdom, and she went to go visit Solomon to see if the things that, uh, that she heard were true. And she believed that God indeed had blessed Solomon with great, great wisdom. Right? And so Jesus is saying, even she 
will stand and look at this generation and say, you guys had the Son of God in your midst and you refused to believe. How could you do that? You see, these Gentiles saw the work of God and they believed in God. God's people saw the work of God and they refused to believe it. So why would Jesus show them any miracles? Why would he show them any further proof that he is who he says he is when all the proof that they need is already right in front of them, but they're just like, no, I'm not going to believe in you. It's actually mercy for him to not show them miracles because the more they know, the more they're accountable for. They couldn't put two and two together and realize that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, even though the evidence was right under their nose. And so, in other words, going back to a theme that we've already touched on earlier, they were spiritually blind. They were spiritually blind. They couldn't see. And so God, in his mercy, doesn't give them more to see because they wouldn't understand it anyway. They wouldn't believe him anyway. And the fact that Jesus does not exercise his right and his authority to perform miracles in the sight of the people is not a statement on the scope of his power, but a demonstration of divine mercy as he holds them less accountable for rejecting him, despite the fact that they've seen him in the flesh. However, despite the fact that Jesus knew of their unbelief, this doesn't stop him from marveling at their unbelief, as we see in verse 6. And he was marveling at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching. This was certainly not the first time people did not believe in Jesus, and it wouldn't be the last. But what we see here is that though the unbelief was not um, unexpected, it still was baffling. Right? Jesus is like, what's going on here? Why don't you believe? He's just like really curious about why they don't believe. And in a sense, we kind of know what that's like, right? When we tell people the truth and they don't believe us, right? That frustrates us. When we share real life experiences with others to try and help them avoid similar mistakes and they go ahead and they make the mistakes that we told them not to make, right? Does that make us kind of stop and be like, why'd you do that? I told you not to do that. I told you that that, that would be, and in nothing but heartache, but you did it. Why'd you do that? Right? Unbelief is stubborn and it's powerful, but it doesn't win in the end. And as we can see here, right, Jesus' response to that unbelief, right, he's he is kind of like, why'd you do that? Right, but he, he's not like moping around, like, oh, I can't believe they rejected me. Right, he's not discouraged to the point where he stops being faithful. Instead, he did what God sent him to do on this earth. Or he went out to the villages and he proclaimed, he proclaimed to them the truth of the scriptures. And if this is what our Savior did in the face of unbelief, we too can be faithful when we are unsuccessful in reaching out to others. Or just be faithful in the discipline of sharing the gospel with others and praying for them. I know some of you uh, might be really excited for the evangelism class that we're going to have. Right? And it's going to be great. There's going to be some good training that will help you like, have a framework for how to share the gospel more effectively. But it's not foolproof. Right? It's not going to be foolproof. You're not going to have all the answers. You're not going to have a, a, a 100% success rate when you go evangelize other people. Right? Jesus didn't. So you can't expect it either. But the most important thing is that you just be faithful. And that's all, I go, that's all that God asks of, asks of us, right? That's actually true of a lot of life, 
And you don't have to be perfect in your walk with God. But you do have the responsibility to try and be faithful. Right? Faithful to discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. Faithful to follow after God. Faithful to live as his representative in this world. No matter what you're doing. Right? That's what God calls us to do. He just asks you to be faithful in your sphere, in wherever you're called to. Right? So if you're a nurse, you be faithful as a nurse. If you're a, if you're a speech therapist, you're faithful as a speech therapist. If you're an office worker, you be faithful as an office worker. Everything that we do, right? everything that we do to the glory of God. Right? If you're an accountant or an engineer, to the glory of God, you do your work. Right? You represent him in front of everybody. Right? The way that you go about your work, the way that you act with integrity in all things. Right? It's meant to demonstrate to people. It's meant to point people to the fact that God can save a life, that he can change a life. That's why we are here. Right? Just be faithful. You're going to mess up. We all mess up. That's okay. Repent. Thank God for his patience towards you keep going that's all God wants he knows you can't follow him faithfully he's not going to hold it against you Christ died for that after all right he died for it all of it not just you know some of it three-fourths of it or whatever right he died for all of it so there is nothing that you can do that will disqualify you from the continued love and grace of God isn't that cool nothing you could mess up in a way that could cause people here in this church, if we were so un inclined to be ungracious, to be like, ooh, never talking to you again. Right? And even if we were to respond that poorly, which, Lord willing, I hope we would never respond that poorly. Right? But even if we were, you are not cut off from the grace and love of God. Okay. And that is glorious that even when people fail you, God will not. Yes? God will not fail you. People will. Right? Even church people will. God will not. And that's why we worship. Right? That's why we give thanks. You know, as we're reminded here of Christ's rejection by his hometown, we see the fact that God is so, so merciful towards us. Right? Despite our sin, he's still working. You know, uh, I, I started uh, reading my Bible from the beginning all over again. I'm trying to get through the entire thing um, in, in this year. So, of course, reading through Genesis again. And if you have a chance to read through Genesis again, and you look at that, that holy family, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they messed up. They are so messed up. You look at them, and you're just like, this is dysfunctional. Well, Y'all need some counseling. It's really messed up. And yet, despite their sin, you see God intervening. You see God rescuing them from their stupid consequences. Right? How many times do you have to see God deliver you before you're reminded, oh, I can trust, I can trust God. I don't have to say, oh, that girl over there, she's my sister. She, she's not my wife. Right? How many times do you got you to see that? Right? That God can protect you from that. And when you're just trying to, like, uh, oh, that girl, uh, she, she, she's my sister. Right, don't kill me because you think she's pretty. Right? 
But how many times you got to see that before you realize, I can actually trust God? God works despite our sin. Nothing can frustrate his plans. And so the plans that he already has for us, no matter what we do to mess it up, he's already accounted for that. In the weird way that he relates to time, at least in our minds, weird way that he relates to time, he's already accounted for all of that. He's taking care of all of that. He is still working despite your sin. And that means that we ought to be really, really thankful because we know that he truly does mean it when he says that he wishes for all to come to repentance. And not everyone will make that choice, but we know that God is merciful, right? And he is not overly vengeful. He doesn't go beyond the line. He gives us exactly what we deserve. It's not as if God is petty because of unbelief. Despite the fact that people may scorn him, he's not looking to give them everything that they deserve and more. And the same applies to you and me. When we sin, God's not looking for an excuse to slap us upside the head. He's not looking for an excuse to put the screws to us and to make us really feel it so we'll never do it again. He's not overly vengeful. When he does discipline us, yeah, it's going to hurt, okay? I'm not, not going to try and sugarcoat it, right? It's, it'll still hurt a little bit, right? But it's meant to. Why? Because the discipline, the pain of the discipline is meant to cause us to wake up, to realize that what we're doing is not right, and it's meant to cause us to turn back to him. Now, in our sinfulness, sometimes when we receive the correction of the Lord, instead of turning to him, what do we do? What do we do? We turn inward, right? We turn inward and we go, woe is me. How can this be? Why is this happening to me? I can't believe God would reject me. I can't believe that he would, that he would leave me behind. But is that true? Right? Theologically, is that true? Right? No. Right? Those whom God saves He will never reject. He will not lose us. He'll never let us go. So the mercy that we see for unbelievers should be something that causes believers to be like, wow, our God is so good to us. Because everything I deserve, I don't get. And even though it hurts, it's for a reason. It's because God loves me. And he wants me to come back to him. Right? That makes salvation so beautiful, doesn't it? That makes the gospel so cool. It's so cool that God would be willing to show us that kind of love and that kind of compassion, despite the fact that we do not deserve it in the slightest. Not even an iota do we deserve. And yet he gives, it, he gives us mercy. Jesus' display of mercy in the face of rejection ought to cause us to be thankful for another few reasons, too. First, we ought to be grateful that he was patient towards us when we had baffling unbelief, right? Or even when we act as if we have unbelief, right? We can still believe in God, but act like unbelievers, yes? Right? We can still believe in God, but have our seasons of doubt and unbelief. And yet he is so so patient towards us. Second, we ought to be grateful that he gave us time. 
He gave us time to come to saving faith. The moment you said your first no in defiant rejection to your parents, when you did not want to eat your peas, and you spat it out, you should have died. And you're like, whoa, that, that's super harsh. Right? But it's like, no, it's true though, right? Because that's defiance. And what's defiance? It's sin. Right? What do we deserve for sin? What do we earn for ourselves in sin? Death. God gave us time. For some of us, right? some of us weren't saved in the church, right? Some of us may have grown up going to church or maybe not even going to church at all. And we didn't get saved until college or after. God gave you time to hear the gospel. Some of you heard the gospel multiple times before you got saved, right? He gave you time. That's something that we have to thank him for. Because right? he, he could have not given us time, but he gave us time. Third, this kind of goes outward a little bit. We ought to be thankful that our loved ones who do not yet believe are being shown God's mercy even now. Right? Some of you have relatives who do not know God. right? And some of your relatives aren't that young. Some of them, 70s, 80s, 90s, even, right? they ain't that young. They've lived a life of unbelief and sin for all that time, and yet God was patient towards them. Right? We ought to be thankful for that. And there's still hope for them. There's still hope for them. So keep praying for them. Keep evangelizing to them. Keep loving them. Right? God's not done working yet. There is still hope. But recognize that, that, there, that you know, he will not strive with us forever. Right? So there is some urgency that's there, but he does give us time. Right? So let's be that faithful witness to those around us of his saving power. Well, this evening we have uh, had the opportunity to observe two lessons from Jesus' ministry to his hometown that encourages us to be thankful for our salvation. As we recognize the depth of our own spiritual blindness before we got saved, it is a wonder that God would choose to save us at all. But yet, right, but yet, God chose to love us, right? He set his love on us, and he chose to save us. He granted us eyes to see so that we might see Christ for who he truly is, and we believed upon him. And that encourages us to be thankful for our salvation, but also it gives us the, a desire to preach the gospel to others and to be gracious and compassionate to our fellow saints who wrestle with sin or even unbelievers who sin against us. Secondly, as we observe Christ's mercy, sparing people from more accountability before God from rejecting the truth when it's apparent to them who he is, we are encouraged again to be thankful for the fact that God does not always give people what they deserve, when they deserve it, but he is patient. He's patient towards all of us. He gave us time. And he remains patient towards those who do not believe right now. And so for those of us who are Christians, we all ought to be thankful that we have more time to witness to them. If you're here this evening and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, God is graciously holding out the gift of salvation to you this night. And if you would just believe in him, that, he, that, that God sent Jesus to die on the cross 
for your sins in your place for the things that you've done. And then he rose again three days later. You can be saved tonight. And so I beg you, I urge you to place your faith in him tonight. If you're here and you are a believer, but you know that you don't love God as you should, and that you don't strive to discipline yourself for the sake of godliness, and that more often than not, the kind of godliness that you have is just kind of through contact credit. Right? You just show up and then whatever comes, comes. Whatever sticks, sticks. Right? If that's the case, right? I encourage you to examine your own heart right? and to strive after God. Right? Do you love God? Right? Ask yourself that question. And don't just respond automatically like, yeah, I love God. Right? But actually think about it. Do you love God? Do you really love him? And does it show up? How does it show up? And if it doesn't show up as it ought to, hey, let's strive together. That's what we do as a church, right? We strive together to pursue after our Lord. Let's do that together. Okay, we can all become more like our Savior. We all have areas where we can grow. Right, so let's do that together. If you know that that's you, all right, that should be all of us really, right, but if you know that's you, let's strive for that, right? Let's turn every aspect of our lives over to him, right? How can we conform every part of our lives, right? Not just the attendance on a Friday or a Sunday kind of thing, right? Your work life, how can you be a witness there? How you act at home, right? If you're still living with your parents or if you have roommates and you're not uh, in the home, right? How can you glorify God in that, right? You're a student, how can you glorify God in your studies, if you're working, how can you glorify God in the way that you conduct yourself in the workplace? Right? These are all aspects of, of our lives that need to be put under the authority of our king. Our God has been good to us for the whole of our lives, for the entirety of our lives. He continues to do so today. So let us not live the Christian life in complacency, in apathy. Right? Do not be content with just kind of drifting through your spiritual life. Right? Seek him out. He can be found. Right? Pursue him with all you got. Because you know right, that the greatest commandment is what? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of us, right? Our entire being is aimed towards loving and knowing Christ and becoming more like him. Don't worry about whether you, how you stack up to other people. Don't worry about how you stack up towards the ideal Christian, the Instagram Christian. Who cares? You be faithful where you're at with your time that God has given, with your energy that you have to love God with all you got. All right, it's going to look different for all of us, but we are still to aim to love God with all that we are. Right, don't just hear the sermon or hear other sermons or read a Bible and just be like, cool, did it, done. Time to go play video games. Right, or time to go watch, uh, what's that, 
those uh, those those uh, those dating shows on Netflix. I heard about it. I didn't watch it. I heard about it though. <laughs> right? Some of y'all are guilty. I see it. Uh, <laughs> right? I mean, you can do that. Right? You can do that. That's fine. Right? You can do that. But, right? Strive with all you got to learn from that too. Right? To even make that applicational. Now, now, don't be like, oh, Pastor Roger said I could do it as an act of worship, so I'm going to do it as an act of worship. Right? But what I'm saying to you is, <laughs> what I'm saying to you is be intentional. Right? Don't just let the truth come in one ear and out the other. Right? Meditate on that. See how you can apply it. Right? And in, in a sense, right, and like, I mean, this is kind of the reason why I brought up the, the media stuff, right, is the entertainment stuff, is we can make everything aimed towards intentional conversation so that we can glorify God. You can watch a movie and be like, okay, I can see how that glorifies God, right? I mean, this is an, old, an older movie, right? But when we want, if you watched Dark Knight, right, you can say, like, oh, that's how bad we could be, huh? Mm. Praise Jesus that, we, that he saved us, right? It's just like, you know, you can do that, right? Anyways, I'm getting too far in my notes. We're going too far. Anyways, all right. Apply the truth, though, okay? That's my appeal to you. That's my encouragement to you. No matter what you do, no matter how you approach life, right, do so trying to figure out what does God ask of me? What does God's word say? Uh, Yeah, what does God's word say? How does it inform my mind? And how does that apply to my life, right? We always got to think about application. Don't just let it sit in our brains and do nothing. It's got to do something, okay? It's got to do something, which is why you can, right, consume things and kind of have that godly mindset, right? But it's got to do something. It's got to do something. And if there are things in your life that you can kind of cut out right, that don't really have any functional purpose, right, and it's just kind of wasting time or it's not good for you at all, right, it leads you to more sin and it doesn't lead you to think about God, right, those are some things that you could probably, probably leave out, Right, your life won't be any different because you haven't watched a particular show because you're not engaged with whatever else is here or there. Okay, Let us not be like the people in Jesus' hometown where we become so familiar with the truth that we barely accept it for what it is. Right, instead, let us remember whom we've placed our faith in and grow in our love with him with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all of our mind. Okay, Before we end and break off into our discussion group, sorry, I went over with all that application, but... Discussion questions for you or application questions. What are some ways that we can act like practical unbelievers in our lives, right? Think about that. How do we, how does that show up in our lives? What do we do that kind of basically looks like unbelief in our lives? Um, number two, how does genuine thankfulness for our salvation reveal itself in our lives? Are you thankful? Right? Do you appreciate your salvation or is this kind of like a thing? Right? So think about that. Number three, what can we do to cultivate a lifestyle of thankfulness for the gospel in our lives, right? So if you answer number two saying, like, it doesn't really show up in my life, think about it. What can we do that demonstrates that we are thankful for our salvation, right? Uh, and this is all kind of, you know, it's a step or, it's, it's kind of like a step or two removed from the main point of this text, right? But the idea is this, right? We all can be like Jesus's uh, hometown in knowing who he is in general, but kind of not living as if we know him, right? So how can we 
live as if we know him. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for today, uh, for um, the, the beauty that we find in your word, the beauty that we find in the gospel as it reminds us of your goodness. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to not live in practical unbelief, but we pray that you would help us to live in light of the truth, in light of the gospel that has saved us. Help us, Lord, to cultivate in our lives a love for you and a trust in you. Thank you for the salvation that you give. Uh, and uh, we pray that you uh, bless the, the time of uh, conversation that we have and uh, fellowship around refreshments. For your sons, and we pray. Amen.